Bible tonight. Let's open up to the book of Job, chapter 36. As uh, tonight we're going to cover a couple of chapters, Job 36 and 37. And let me begin by saying this. I don't know if you know this or not, but I do think it's important to realize that it's not wise to overgeneralize. It's not wise to overgeneralize. We're going to see that this evening that Job's friend, Elihu, he, he declares a lot of general truths. We'll call them general truths about God and the way that, that God deals with people. And these are important for us to know. It's general truths we found in the scriptures, right? But what we're going to see is that he overgeneralized because they were not applicable to Job. And that's why as we're going through this book that we have to always keep in mind, especially when we're studying biblical books of wisdom, that it's not wise to overgeneralize. Uh, for example, in the book of Proverbs, it says you train up a child in the way he should go, and boom, he's going to get saved. Don't worry, everything's going to be great. And that's a, a general truth. Now, does that mean that every single good parent will have saved children? No, it is a general truth. And generally speaking, yes, they have a greater chance. But you guys know this, huh? That every person must make their choice. And so as we go through life, you know, we have to make sure that we're, you know, wise and we don't overgeneralize when we read the scriptures. For example, let me ask you guys a question. If you saw a man in prison, you went to prison, and you saw a guy locked up, let me ask you a question. Would you conclude that he's guilty? Would you say that? And generally speaking, yes, right? He's committed the crime, and he deserves the time. But, but you guys know this, that statistics tell us that probably somewhere around 5% of all those in jail or in prison are innocent, right? And so we have to, we got to guard ourselves from seeing someone in a superficial and general way, jumping to conclusions like Job's friends did. You know, because when you look at Job, you have to admit, you look at his life and he lost everything. All his children died in one day. They didn't just die. They all died in one day. And then he lost all his wealth one day, all his health, you know, one day. And, and you look at that and you think, man, that looks like God's judging him. And then to top things off, when you go and you have a conversation with him, he's, he's, he's questioning. I mean, he's like, God, it doesn't seem right. I don't understand this. And so if you were there, you know, I think that we might be guilty of the same thing Job's friends were guilty of, and that is overgeneralizing and we have to be so sensitive to the Holy Spirit and as we go through life there are important lessons for us the book of Job believe it or not we're almost done isn't that I mean I'm kind of looking forward to the Psalms and other books that we're going to study together but to me it's definitely a life-changing thing because um, the book of Job teaches us how to suffer and we will suffer in life and it teaches us how to be a comforter and prayerfully that we will be equipped by reading this book to be able to be a comforter in life as well. You know, in chapters 1 and 2, we saw Job's dilemma. In chapters 3 through 37, we saw Job's debate. And then in chapter 38 through 42, we're going to see Job's 
a deliverance. Um, it's interesting, Job's friends were under the impression that God was disciplining him, while Job was kind of under the impression that God was destroying him. But all along, we're going to see in the end that God was developing him. And that's why he went through the trials that he went through. It's hard to imagine, but you know, Job was a very mature Christian. He may have been, I don't know if there's such a thing, but the most upright and blameless man on planet Earth. And so you would look at him and you would think, well, he doesn't really need to grow, but we all do, right? I mean, no matter how long you've been a Christian, no matter how many I's you're dotting or T's you're crossing, you know, uh, we all need to grow, huh? And that's where, where Job is an example to us. Uh, are you hungry? Are you hungry to grow? Do you want to know the Lord more? I tell you what, you know, sometimes when you read through the Bible, you're like, well, I don't know, you know, what are the, the ABC lessons? What are the 10 points? And, you know, we try to categorize things like that, and that's how we grow. We think it's through knowledge, but you know, as you're going through and you're studying, for example, the life of Job, you know, sometimes God speaks to us and, and teaches us things just by looking at someone's life. Not necessarily the lips, it's the life. And as you study Job, my, my prayer is that, that we will grow. I've been seeing that in the, in the church, and uh, I'll just be honest with you, man, it, it just is it's exciting. Tuesday night, you know, you get 70 ladies here or whatever, and this is their, they just see them studying the word and fellowshipping, talking, is just beautiful. Last night, we got a good group of guys here, and the, the thing about it that's so cool is that they're coming in, and I'm sitting in the, the groups, and they're learning, and they're growing, and you see God working in their life. They're changing. They're changing. Their life is changing. They're no longer you know, chained to the sins or addicted to the drugs or living a life of, you know, sexual morality. They're changing. And after the study, they stuck around. Maybe for the food, but I think there was more to it. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm, I'm not. I got to tell you guys this because what it does is it glorifies God. I, I taught to probably like five, six guys, just pure fellowship. We were here till 1030 that night, just pure fellowship, counsel, crying together. God is working. And that's why it's so cool to be able to study the word together because, you know, he's changing us and he's learning us how to be, he's teaching us how to be strong in him. And so in our study today, we're going to see that Elihu tries to reason Job into kind of seeing God in two ways. I can change you, number one, by telling you that God will kill you. Does that strike any, any fear in anybody's body? Don't fear him who can kill your body, but fear him who can throw both body and soul into hell. So there is that element of, hey, there's a healthy fear. Elihu tries that, but not only is he trying to reason with Job, exposing God to be the judge who can kill him, but we're also going to see in our study today that he is the maker who can still him. You know, when you, when you guys, when we study through the book of Job, you guys know that he went through crazy things, right? I mean, crazy things. And he was so right on. And he would, you know, probably the, the big question is why? Why? Why me, God? Why do I go through this? And you know, at the end of the day, we're going to see next week, Lord willing, that God shows up 
and he doesn't answer the question why. Lord, why did that happen? Why did that happen? Why did that happen to me when I was a kid or then? And, and he doesn't answer the question why. He answers the question who. That, that what, when God shows up, we're going to see that what he does is he says, I'm running the universe. I'm running the universe. There's not a star that's missing. There is nothing. I am running this universe. You're not. And I want you to know, I'm running your life. And when that kind of hits home, does that bring a peace to you? It does, huh? I, it's supposed to. If not, you're weird, but we're going to see. <laughs> it's supposed to. Look at Elihu in, in chapter 36, beginning in verse 1. This is the last couple of chapters, and then God's going to speak in 38. But it says, Elihu also proceeded and said, Bear with me a little, and I will show you that there are yet words to speak on God's behalf. I will fetch my knowledge from afar. I will ascribe righteousness to my maker. For truly, my words are not false. One who is perfect in knowledge is with you. He's a humble guy, huh? Imagine that, someone coming up to you and saying, listen to me, I'm, I'm defending God, I'm speaking on God's behalf. I want you to know who you're in the presence of, somebody who's perfect in knowledge. And I will say this, be careful of people like that. <laughs> you know, people who think they know everything and they're the authority over the church or, or even someone that might come up to you and say, tell you, you know what, the Lord told me to tell you, tell you, you, know, to tell you this, I'm, you know, I'm giving you a message straight from God. You know, uh, Pastor Chuck, I was reading his commentary on this and he was saying that, man, he, he heard that a lot over the years, that people would come up to him or they would write letters to him you know, saying that they were God's spokesmen, you know? And, and he said that, you know, every once in a while, you, you did hear someone give you a, a valid word of wisdom or, you know, a word of knowledge or something. But he said for the most part over the years, a lot of times these people didn't know what they were talking about. Sometimes they would write letters to him, try to tell him how to run the church or whatever the case may be, and they wouldn't sign it. So what he decided to do was when he got those letters from people who claimed to speak on behalf of God, the first thing he would do is check and see if they signed it. And if they didn't sign it, he would throw it away. <laughs> you know, because he figured, man, if they don't have the courage to sign it, then why leave a little note? And so, you know, we have to be careful. I know that I have, uh, I remember one time my wife and uh, a friend, they were young in the Lord. You know, um, they, they were crossing the street and, uh, and somebody drove kind of crazy and almost hit them. And so right away, this guy, you know, comes up to them, some weird guy. And, and I can say this because I knew eventually that he was weird. You know, sometimes you get, you get weird people, you know, in the church. And so, you know, come up to him and just started lecturing them right there. Oh, you know, you better search your heart. There's a secret sin that you don't see. And they're all, you know, right there because uh, they're new believers. They don't know those things. We all have to search our heart, but you know, when you start claiming to speak on behalf of God, you know, you're one who's perfect in knowledge. Be, don't be that way and be careful of people who are that way, okay? So anyways, this humble guy uh, then speaks in verse 5. He says, Behold, God is mighty, but despises no one. 
He is mighty in strength of understanding. He does not preserve the life of the wicked, but gives justice to the oppressed. And so here we see uh, that Elihu says that God is mighty. He's, he is mighty, right? He's the maker. He's the maintainer of the universe. But even though he is that, what Elihu says is true, that he deals with us individually, 100% personally dealing with every single person. He doesn't despise us and think, well, they're too small for me to interact with. No, you know, he's dealing with all of us individually. Now that can be good, right? For some of you here that are, are walking with the Lord and, and that can also be something that can be disturbing if you're not, right? Elihu says, if you're wicked, then you're gonna perish. And if you're oppressed or if you're suffering wrongfully, then you're going to be protected. And so he goes on in verse 7 to describe how God protects the righteous. He says, and he does not withdraw his eyes from the righteous, but they are on the throne with kings, for he has seated them forever, and they are exalted. And you know, this is so cool when you see this, how God is watching over us. It's comforting to know that. I mean, do you guys realize that, that God sees you? That God sees your struggles? That God sees your inner turmoil? That God uh, sees you every single day? The Bible says in 1 Peter 3.12 that the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers. You know, I remember Chuck, again, he would always say that, you know, the reason God's watching you is not necessarily because he wants to give you a trancaso every minute, you know, just waiting for you to get out of line. It's more because of the fact that he loves you and he can't take his eyes off of you. And so, you know, this is true, what Elihu says right here. God sees us. You know, it's interesting, when God commissioned Moses to set the people free in the Jews who were in bondage there in Egypt. You, do you remember what he said? He said to Moses when he came and he commissioned him and he said, hey, I've got a work for you to do because all these people right there are in bondage in Egypt. Do you remember what God said to him? He said in Exodus 3 verse 7, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters for I know their sorrows. See, God hears, God sees, God knows exactly what you're going through. And that's such a comfort for us to know the personal God that he is. He sees those of you who are righteous, you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ. You know, just in case you're here, maybe it's your first time here and you're wondering, well, how does all this work? Man, there is a God who loves you. He made you in his image, and when we sin, we separate ourselves from him, but he died for you. He died for you on the cross, and all you have to do is, you know, repent of your sins and receive Christ as Lord and Savior. Let go of it and come to Christ, and when you do, you become righteous, and it's just so cool. What we see right here is that then he gets seated. Look at verse 7 again, if he would. He does not withdraw his eyes from the righteous but they are on the throne with kings, for he has seated them forever, and they are exalted. Now that's an interesting verse. It definitely takes us to Ephesians chapter two, where God says that we as Christians 
are seated in the heavenly places. And so, you know, it's true what he's saying, and I pray that you would take it to heart. I mean, do you guys know that you got a spot in heaven? You guys know that? How many of you here are looking forward to heaven one day? I mean, we're, we're not ready to die in one sense because we still got a lot of living to live, right? And there's still a lot of work to do. There's still family members who need your love. They need your help. They need your support. There's still ministry that needs to take place. There's still a lot of life to live, but I do know I have a spot in heaven. And the Bible even says in a mysterious way, which I don't understand, it says I'm already seated there. Because God is outside of time. He already sees me there in heaven. So this is the blessing of being a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, that all your sins are forgiven, that he is watching over you, hearing you, seeing you, knowing you, and that we have this place where you've been exalted and seated there in heaven. We read that in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 6. And so um, there's this paradise that, that Elihu speaks of in one sense, but then there's also this prison. Look at verse 8. He, he says this, And if they are bound in fetters, held in the cords of affliction, then he tells them their work and their transgressions, that they have acted defiantly. He also opens their ears to instruction and commands that they turn from iniquity. If they obey and serve him, they shall spend their days in prosperity and their, and their years in pleasures. But if they do not obey, they shall perish by the sword and they shall die without knowledge. You know, he talks about the righteous in, in paradise and he kind of talks about the unrighteous who are there in prison and he describes them as being punished. And you know, that's the way he sees Job in one sense. You've been captured, you're caught in sin, and you're busted, and you're in prison, and you're being punished. And now, Job, you know, God is dealing with you. And, you know, generally speaking, you know, God does deal with prisoners like that, right? I mean, those who are locked up for a crime they've committed. Maybe some of you here, you have a loved one who's in prison. They're, in, they're doing time. Let me ask you a question. Do you think God's dealing with them? Definitely. You know, God is dealing with them, right? He loves them, and he wants to bring them to him. That's why, just in case you're here and you're ever interested in prison ministry, I say go for it. To be able to go and visit those who are in prison and minister to them because God does deal with them like Elihu says. God wants them to see their sins, but most of all, he wants them to see their sin, that singular sin. How they reject the Redeemer. That's the key to everything because once you find Jesus, then you find freedom. No matter where you are. There are some people who are locked up in prison and they're more free than people who are out here walking the streets and doing whatever they want, but they're under the bondage and the dominion of sin, some addiction that rules over their life. See, Jesus, in the truth, he sets us free. God is dealing with the prisoner, and Elihu talks about that. And there are some people that attend this church, I won't tell you who they are now, but man, they got saved in prison, man. 
They got saved in jail. And you're like, who? Hey, don't worry about it, man. <laughs> God has totally changed their life, and they're just now, they're, they're this, you know, this beautiful people. God can do that with anyone. Charles Colson was one of the guys in the Watergate scandal, and he had everything life had to offer. Chances are he would never get saved because he probably thought he was too rich and righteous, and he didn't need God. He had success, and everything was going good until he went down. He got busted. Two years in prison was his sentence, and while he was in there, Christians went in, and they ministered to him, and his life so radically changed that he came out, and when he did, he started this ministry called Prison Fellowship that just continues, even though he's home now, it continues to minister to many, many lives. You know, I've spoken to many Christians who have come to the conclusion that the best they could, you know, happen, the best thing that could happen to their loved one is if they got arrested because then they kind of get picked up and they're hoping that they might look up to God but, but you know, we all have a choice. Look again, if you would, at verse 11. He says, if they obey, if they obey and serve him, they shall spend their days in prosperity and their years in pleasures. And, and you know, not necessarily saying that you're going to be rich, but you will. I promise you. Can you guys hear me? I promise you, you will be blessed if you obey. If you choose to obey God, He will bless your life. I mean, we're talking about days of spiritual prosperity and years of, of spiritual pleasure. But if you do not obey, if they do not obey, they shall perish by the sword and they shall die without knowledge. Maybe some of you here are in the middle of some type of choice. I felt that way last night talking to some of the guys. They're just right there. They could go either way. And you know, and then the Lord just comes in and by, by the grace of God, he might use your life to tip the scale and lead them in the right direction. What did Joshua say? Chapter 24, verse 15. Choose for yourself who you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And so we have to make that choice, right? Elihu is thinking that he's getting Job, that Job's the one in prison and needs to repent. And he next needs to warn him of his hypocrisy. Look at verse 13. But the hypocrites in heart store up wrath. They do not cry for help when he binds them. They die in youth and their life ends among the perverted persons. You see, Elihu was convinced that if Job was a hard-hearted, you know, hypocrite, that he was hard-hearted and, and headed for hell, and that if, you know, he didn't, you know, listen to what he had to say, that not only would he die, but he'd end up dying a disgraceful death. And he talks about the perverted persons right there. And, and you know what? I, I, you know, we got to speak truth, right? Tragically, that is the case for some people. I mean, my prayer is that, that that wouldn't happen to any of us here. But, you know, if, if we don't abide in the Lord, you know, if we don't rest in Christ, if we don't take God, you know, seriously and serve Him with our whole heart and love Him the way that we should, then, you know, 
I mean, anything can happen. You know, Samson, when I think of Samson, I mean, this guy right here was such a gifted man, but he was trapped by his little girlfriend who didn't love the Lord. You know, and a lot of times Christians, they, you know, in all reality, you know, they're playing Russian roulette with a girlfriend or a boyfriend. You know, like, they're like, well, I think he knows the Lord, or I think she knows the Lord. I'm pretty sure they do. They got the t-shirt. They got the bumper sticker. You know, they go to church every once in a while. You know, and I always try to tell young people, man, you don't want to gamble with that. You don't want to gamble with the one that you might marry. I mean, do they know the Lord? Are you sure they know the Lord? Do they show fruit? Are they... And they committed Christian? That's what happened to Samson, a guy that was so strong, but he was trapped by the girlfriend, right? That can happen to people. And I think of, of Balaam, a man who was so gifted, even speaking prophetic words that we have in our Bible. You remember Balaam? But the thing is that he loved money more than he loved God. He loved money and the things that money can buy. And in the end, you guys know that he did not die the death of the righteous. I mean, anyone here, just out of curiosity, anyone here have any words that they wrote in the Bible? I don't think so, huh? Balaam does, but he died and he went to hell. Samson, any of you here, you know, defeat a whole army with the, the, the jawbone of a donkey? I mean, carrying the city gates on your shoulders? I mean, think about this. But then he got caught, and they took out his eyes. They bound him, they tied him up, and he went around circles grinding the millstone. He died this death in which he committed, really, suicide. I mean, some people think that Samson's death was noble because he pushed the pillars and he killed a whole bunch of Philistines, but it wasn't noble. He killed himself. And then I think of Judas. I mean, talk about somebody who was so privileged with the opportunity to serve God. The opportunity to serve God in such a beautiful way, to be used by God, to save people. I mean, Judas was a guy that Jesus said, hey, I want to write your name on one of the 12 foundations of that wonderful wall in heaven, and your name will be right there. It'll say Judas there on that foundation of the city walls in Jerusalem. And forever and ever and ever you will bring glory to God. But he chose a different way. He chose not to serve God. And we can do that. You know, prayerfully you guys, we're all in. We're all in. Because if not, then the enemy comes in and he gets a toe hold. Next thing you know, he gets a foothold. Next thing you know, leg hold. And I used to wrestle. I, I know how it is, man. And next thing you know, you're done. Prayerfully, we're all in. It is a warning for us all. But as we see in our study, it wasn't really applicable to Job just then. But Elihu just wants to Ask Job, hey, you need to pray for forgiveness. And notice what he says next in verse 15. I mean, he just goes for the jugular. He's talking in verse 15. He delivers the poor in their affliction and opens their ears in oppression. Indeed, he would have brought you out of dire distress into a broad place where there is no restraint. And, and what is set on your table would be full of riches. 
But, he tells Job, you are filled with the judgment due the wicked. Judgment and justice take hold of you. You know, what, what he says to, to Job, really there in verse 15, by means of their suffering, what God does is he rescues those who suffer and he gets their attention through adversity. And it's true, huh? He does. You know, but uh, for, for Job, uh, you know, Elihu says, you know, if you would have just got right, Job, then you would have, you know, all this food on your table. And man, your life would be blessed, you know, but you chose not to do it. And so what he says there is so heavy that, Job, you are being judged, right? I mean, just straight out. And, and when we look at this right here, we see how wrong he was. Um, in verse 18, it says, Because there is wrath, beware, lest he take you away with one blow. For a large ransom would not help you avoid it. Will your riches or all the mighty forces keep you from distress? Do not desire the night when people are cut off in their place. Take heed. Do not turn to the iniquity, for you have chosen this rather than affliction. And, you know, here we see he says to, to Job, just to let you know, God's mad at you. God's mad. that He mentions that word wrath right there. And he's just ready to condemn and clobber you. I'm going to see, you're going to see God's going to take you down and you're going to die any day now. Now, um, I don't know how you guys are. How many of you guys here would consider yourself to be a softy? You're more of a softy, a gracious person. Well, we don't have very many in this church. <laughs> how many of you are like, you know, hey, get right or get left? How many of you are more like that, right? <laughs> You know, we all have our different personalities, right? And so I don't want to take away from that. I mean, because when you look at John the Baptist, that's the way he was, huh? And so there is something about that that I understand that we're all unique in that sense. You know, and so we have to be our sanctified selves, who God made us to be. Thank God, generally speaking, women tend to be a little bit more gracious or gentle or soft. And, you know, guys are a little bit more you know, law or legal, things like that. And so we kind of balance each other out. But in, but in looking at this right here, what we find is that, you know, there is a time to warn people. There is a time. There is a place. Huh? There is. I mean, we're, you got to tell them, man, you know, you're gambling with your soul. You're gambling with eternity. I mean, I honestly believe that if I were to have an affair or if I were to go out and have a beer or get drunk or high, I think God would kill me. Honestly, man, because I am so accountable and I have people praying for me. I mean, I just, I fear God. I, I do believe in that part of God, you know? And so there is a place for that. Hopefully you guys have a healthy fear of God. And that's one of the things that we see right here. You know, and, and you know, he, he's telling Job, and sometimes this is applicable to people, don't think you can get out of it. You need to really get right. He tells them right there, your, your money won't, won't, won't save you. Look again, if you would, at verse 18. He says right there, for a large ransom would not help you avoid it. Will your riches or, or will your riches do it? No, you know, money can't get you out of it, right? The Wall Street Journal has said it best. It said, Money is an article which may be used as a universal passport to everywhere except heaven. 
and as a universal provider for everything except peace. So, you know, sometimes people think, well, money's the answer. No way, it's not the answer. The Lord's the answer. Don't, don't look to money. And then in verse 19, he talks about human might. There's no force, human might, that you can get, get you out of it. In verse 20, what he's saying right there is even if you take your life, some people think that suicide is the solution, right? But understand that you can't escape judgment. And, and you know, there's that general truth. I'm sure you guys have heard it that said suicide is a permanent cop-out to a temporary problem. You know, that's not the answer. Money's not the answer. Brute force isn't the answer. Verse 21 is, is this indulging in sin. They're like, forget it then. I'm just going to go and sow my wild oats. I mean, if I can't get my way, then I'm just going to go get high and rock and roll and sex and drugs. And in verse 21, Elihu says, that's not the answer. You know, they go off the deep end, choosing to sin rather than suffer. No, suffer. Wait on the Lord. Follow Jesus Christ. Suffer. Don't sin. Remember I mentioned earlier, Elihu tries to reason Job that he might see God in one of two ways. Either the judge who can kill him, and that's kind of what we covered so far. Now we get into the part where it's the maker who can steal him. And you know, one is an argument from condemnation. The other is an argument from creation. Because look at verse 22. It says, Behold, God is exalted by his power. Who teaches like him? Who has assigned him his way? Or who has said, you have done wrong? Remember to magnify his work of which men have sung. Everyone has seen it. Man looks on it from afar. And I'll tell you what, you guys. Now he's actually getting closer to the way he should have counseled in the beginning. You know, what's he going to do now? He's going to start pointing him to the, the God who, who made everything. And really, that's where we need to go. You know, when we look at this section right here, what we find is that we need to have an accurate view of ourselves. But, but even probably more important than that is we need to have an accurate view of God. We read right here that God is all-powerful. You know, does that, does that mean anything to you? How many of you here are in a, a dilemma in your life, just out of curiosity, and you think it's like too hard for God? I mean, we're not, huh? And we talk to people all the time. He's all powerful. There's nothing too hard for him. We need to see that. Elihu says that's who God is. He's, he's mighty. He's the best teacher. He's the best teacher. Would you guys say amen to that? Amen. You're like, no, Greg Laurie. No, the Lord is... <laughs> is the best teacher. I'm telling you this. Let me ask you a question. Do you believe he's the best teacher? Yes. Are you listening to him? Yes. Okay, some of you are. Some of you are like, ah, I don't know. I got to go now. <laughs> I'm telling you, man, you're like, wow, I don't know if I'm learning. Then you're not listening. Do you ever spend time in prayer and the word? I mean, you hear things here and there and everywhere. I'll tell you what, he's the best teacher. Listen to him. Listen to your Lord. You know, he says right here, no one can tell him what to do or no one can tell him that he's wrong because God's never made a mistake. There's no oops in his vocabulary, right? 
In verse 24, isn't that a beautiful verse, you guys? For those of you who worship, you actually worship, look what it says. Remember to magnify his work of which men have sung. Uh, I'm going to tell you this, and I don't want to point any fingers right now, but maybe I should. I was watching you during worship. I was watching you during worship, and I saw some of you like this. But it was from the heart. It wasn't like fake. You were just like worshiping. And I saw some of you like this. They're just like, and I'm like, they're not even like engaged in it. They're not really, there's like, what's going on? There's not like this worship taking place. I mean, most of you were, but a couple of you, I want to encourage you seeing when you do, you magnify his work. That's what we see right there in verse 24. In verse 25, God's glory is visible all over the earth. I mean, anyone can see it from afar. And he's going to talk a lot about rain and lightning and thunder as we go through here. Notice again, if you would, at verse 26, if you see, it says, Behold, God is great, and we do not know him, nor can the number of his years be discovered. Now, it's true, we can't comprehend God. We're not going to figure him out, know everything about him. But... You need to know, and we'll talk about this more later, that we can know him. We can. But he really is an amazing God. Look at verse 27. It says, For he draws up drops of water, which distill as rain from the mist, which the clouds drop down and pour abundantly on man. Indeed, can anyone understand the spreading of clouds, the thunder from his canopy? Look, he scatters his light upon it. That's the lightning and covers the depths of the sea. For by these, he judges or governs the people. He gives food in abundance. He covers his hands with lightning and commands it to strike, literally in the Hebrew, exactly where he directs it. His thunder declares it. And the cattle also concerning the rising storm. They have this, the cattle, they have this intuition. They know when the storm is coming. And so what's he doing now? Is he showing us how amazing God is, you know, when we look at the, the, the rain, you know. And here's something that's interesting, and I'm going to try to go through this section real quick. There's this, there's the, some say that as we go through this next remainder of the words of Elihu, that he's going to speak on the four seasons, the fall, uh, the, the winter, and then the spring, and then the summer. And it's pretty fascinating the way that it works, dealing, first of all, with the fall. Warren Rearsby said, In the east, after the heat and the drought of summer, the land and the people welcome the fall and autumn rains. And so right here, Elihu brings up the brilliance of God's water cycle, right? The evaporation, the condensation, and then the precipitation. You know, I'll tell you what, God is brilliant in this. And, you know, you got to see the way the cycle works. You know, it's funny how rain works. You guys like rain, right? I, I know for a fact that God has a sense of humor because it always rains when I wash my car. So it's amazing. <laughs> but he's in control of all these things. He really is, right? And what we're going to see as we go through this section is kind of like the mind of a scientist combined with the, the beauty or heart of a poet. And so uh, we need to see, like I said, the Lord 
in the wisdom of his creation. Look at verse 1 of chapter 37. At this also my heart trembles and leaps from its place. Hear attentively the thunder of his voice and the rumbling that comes from his mouth. He sends it forth under the whole heaven, his lightning to the ends of the earth. After it, it, a voice roars and he thunders with his majestic voice and he does not restrain them. In other words, it's, it's loud when his voice is heard. God thunders marvelously with his roar, with his voice. He does great things which we cannot comprehend. I mean, how many of you here, you, you, you're just in awe when you see the lightning and when you hear the thunder? Isn't it just like, like in one sense, just a, a small uh, sliver of seeing his majesty? And it's interesting how it says that that lightning, it goes exactly where he tells it to go. And sometimes he'll bring water to judge. Sometimes he'll bring water to provide food. All of those things are just the way that we need to understand how God deals with us. You know, it's interesting to me when you look at all those things, the, the, the rain and the lightning and the thunder, that right there more than likely is descriptive of what would happen during the fall but then we get into the winter in verse 6, for he says to the snow, fall on the earth. Likewise to the gentle rain and the heavy rain of his strength. And he seals the hand of every man that all men may know his work. The beasts go into dens and remain in their lairs. And from the chamber of the south comes the whirlwind and cold from the scattering winds of the north. By the breath of God, ice is given and the broad waters are frozen. How many of you here, you like, uh, you have a, a favorite season of the year, just out of curiosity? You like fall, winter, spring, summer? Anyone here like summer? There's a couple out here, it's a trip. You know, <laughs> to me, when I think of it, you know, and I, I don't know, and I don't want to get like mystical or anything, but life has a way of, of, kind of putting us in different seasons, huh? I mean, you know, there's the, there's the winter times. And even though you might like winter, but the way that I, I think of winter is the tough times, you know, the dark times, right? But what does winter then produce? It produces life. It produces spring. And then, you know, you go on to these different uh, seasons that God gives in life. And that if you're in winter right now, I just want you to know that that spring is coming, Right? In, in verse 11 through 13, and it's a little bit more difficult to uh, differentiate, but he says in verse 11, also with moisture, he saturates the thick clouds and he scatters his bright clouds. How many of you here li like the way the clouds look? I mean, when you look at them, aren't they beautiful? And sometimes you get the sun, it's a different color, and wherever, the orange, the different things like that. This is the God who's watching over your life. I mean, it's just amazing to me. And he's talking about, you know, these, the, verse 12, and they swirl about being turned by whose guidance? By his guidance. That they may go and do whatever he commands them on the face of the whole earth. He causes it to come, whether for correction or for his land or, or for mercy. 
You know, and, and when you look at that, it's interesting how God will bring the, the rain. If you have an NIV, it says from his love. Instead of mercy, it says love. This is the way that God provides for us. Remember when we were going through a drought for a while? Do you guys remember that? And, uh, and I, was, I was getting kind of bummed because my grass was getting brown and I couldn't buy, I just couldn't get buy into the mentality that says brown is a new green. I just couldn't, man. And so, um, and then it started raining again and it brought that greenness. And, I, and then when it rained, I don't know how you guys feel about rain. Was there ever a time in your life where you didn't like it? You're like, oh man, it's raining. It's bummed, you know, I can't, whatever. Then when it started raining, you know what started happening in my heart? I just started saying, thank you, Lord. Thank you for the rain. Lord, we don't deserve it. But thank you for the rain. You know, and that's what God does. I mean, when we see this right here, you know, it's interesting how um, the, the verse 14, um, let's go there. Listen to this, O Job. Stand still and consider the wondrous works of God. Do you know when God dispatches them and causes the light of his clouds to shine? Do you know the clouds are balanced, those wondrous works of him who is, perfe who is perfect in knowledge? Why are your garments hot? Now he gets into the summer. When he quiets the earth by the south wind, with him have you spread out the skies strong as a cast metal mirror? You know, and it's interesting, just again, pointing them back to God. We don't have time to elaborate on these things, but we're going to talk more about it when we get into the conversation that, that God has with Job. But isn't it amazing when you see how God is in control of all these amazing intricacies of his creation? And then what Elihu says is that, you know, he's also in control of your life. I love the concept of the guidance there. Not only that, here's something to think about. Did you ever notice how all creation is in submission to their creator except those who are created in his image? Have you guys ever heard the birds sing? In the, how many of you guys wake up in the morning to hear the birds sing? I love it. Sometimes I'll be out in my garage and I'll be praying and then I'll just pause for a moment and they're like, okay, there they are. You know, they're singing. What are they doing? They're worshiping. The trees, they're worshiping. The stars, the Bible says they're singing. It's like all creation is in submission to him, in one sense, except for us. There's an interesting passage in the book of Isaiah. It says, the ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know my people. Do not consider. Let me ask you a question. Who owns you? God does. He bought you with a price. He bought you with his blood. You are not your own. As creation yields to him and submits to him in this beautiful work that God's doing, may we uh, be the same. In closing, look at verse 19. Teach us what we should say to him. He's being sarcastic now to Job. For we can prepare nothing because of the darkness. Should he be told that I wish to speak, if a man were to speak, surely he would be swallowed up. Even now men cannot look at the light when it is bright in the skies, when the wind has passed and cleared them. He comes from the north as golden splendor, with God as awesome majesty. 
As for the mighty, we cannot find him. He is excellent in power, in judgment, and abundant justice. He does not oppress, therefore men fear him. He shows no partiality to any who are wise of heart. And let me just close by saying this. Are you a Berean? You know what a Berean is? A Berean is when they listen to the message, they really test it. They're like, oh, okay, is that biblical? Is that true? That's not true. In listening to his final words, you'll see some things are true and some things aren't. You know, in a nutshell, what he says towards the end is true. But prior to that, you know what he said? If you want to talk to God, it's futile. That's what he said. If you want to see God, you can't. And if you want to find God, it ain't going to happen. But we know the contrary to be true, huh? In closing, right? If you want to talk to God, can you? You can. Do you? Do you ever just get away, get on your knees and speak to him? Do you really see him with the eyes of your heart? You know, and what does the Bible say in Jeremiah 29, 11 through 13? For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. And then you will call upon me and go and pray to me, and I will listen to you. Here it is. Listen, listen, listen. And you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all of your heart. I tell you what, man, that's an awesome promise for us to have. And I just know, you know, that God is calling me to that place. You know, I've read the Bible a lot and I've been blessed because God can speak through a donkey even to teach, you know, at times. But I tell you what, I have never been in a place in my life where I want to know him with a greater hunger than I have right now. You know, I know life is hard, and maybe you're here and you're wondering, you know, why, Lord? Why am I going through these things? Basically, what we find right here is, number one, God wants you to get saved. But number two, God wants to draw you closer to Him. And the way that we really, you know, come out of these trials in, in the right way is not by, by getting answers. We don't live by explanations. We live by promises, right, to get to know him. Let me close with this poet, poem right here. It says, I, I know not, but God knows. Oh, blessed rest from fear. All my unfolding days to him are plain and clear. Each anxious, puzzled why from doubt and dread that grows finds answers in this thought. I know not, but he knows. That's all that matters, huh? It's all that matters.